Thank you. Okay, so everybody, I want to uh, just have a show of hands. Who's got a dog? Anybody got a dog? Whoa, hold on. <laughs> that's incredible. So everybody's got a dog. If you haven't got a dog, show your hands. No, 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 that's fine. So I just want you to uh, picture the scene for a moment. Um, it, you've got to try and, first of all, picture me at about eight years old. So I know that's the first challenge. Was I ever only eight? I can hear some people thinking. We're in Africa. Uh, it's uh, right up in the northern part of Nigeria. Uh, when you go outside of the uh, house, it's just sand. So if you imagine a, a beach, that's what it was, and the sand would blow everywhere. It was just always, always, all the time blowing into the house and everything. So I'm stood beside my mum. Uh, we stood on the veranda of our home. Uh, where we lived was uh, formed part of a, a, a square, a courtyard, if you like. And uh, down in the far corner, so down where Adrian is at the back of the tent, there was the gateway that led out into the street. And to the left-hand side of that was the places where the Land Rovers were parked. I have a brother. He's 18 months younger than I am. My mum and I are stood on the front, and suddenly she looks up and she sees Sam down in front of one of the Land Rovers. And the man who is in the Land Rover is reversing it. And she, my mother knows that what she's going to do, what the man's going to do, is once he's reversed it, he will then be able to go out round and out of the gate. So my brother is pretending to push the Land Rover. Uh, so he was uh, six, I suppose, five and a half, six, something like that. And he is uh, pretending to do that. He's dressed in uh, just his little dungarees, no shoes on or anything. We didn't bother with shoes and things. And, uh, and my mum knows what's going to happen, but there's no way she can run to the distance. We have two dogs, Amber and Toffee. Amber is the uh, female dog. And my mother only has to think what's going to happen. She screams out. Amber immediately jumps up and runs down and picks him up by the, the top of the dungarees at the back and pulls him away from the Land Rover and what was about to be an accident. Now, I think that's amazing. I mean, obviously, dogs are quite intelligent. In fact, when I meet dogs and talk to them and I look at the owners and try to have some sort of conversation with them, I wonder which is the more fruitful at times. <laughs> but... Isn't it incredible how that can happen? Now, all of this uh, fits in a little bit with what we're talking about, but I really wanted to just tell you that story because I've been desperately trying to think of a time to be able to tell it to you, and uh, so I thought I would do that this evening. And I'm going to tell you another story about uh, uh, Nigeria as well. But before we do that, I just wanted you to mull over the verses that, uh, <coughs> that Randy read to us so very well, a section of Scripture which is probably uh, well known by people who come to church regularly. Those who like reading their Bibles, they would have read uh, Ezekiel 30, 33 because it contains a lot of really, really sharp information about us. But one of the things that it says there in verse 17 is, Yet the children of your people say, The way of the Lord is not fair. It's not fair. How often do you hear that statement being made? Okay, for those of you, and I won't ask for a show of hands, if you've got young children, you know that that is a standard. It's not fair, okay? It's not fair. She's got more than I've got, okay? And so we're familiar with that. But the thing is, it's not just young children that say that. All of us do. And if we don't say it out loud, we think about it. And so often we think to ourselves, it's not fair. So-and-so's got a much nicer house than I've got. You know, how, how, what did she do to deserve that? What did he do to deserve that? 
And so we get this idea that it's not fair, but it goes much, much deeper than just the financial things in life or the way we look, um, the friends we have. It goes much, much deeper than that. It goes down to the fact that when you talk to people and things are going wrong in their lives, do you know who they blame? They don't blame Satan, they blame God. It's God's fault. He's responsible for the situation. I've told you this one before, but uh, when I was involved in door-to-door work and I was down the other end of Carmen Street working my way around, uh, have you managed to do that section yet, Randy? No, 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 they're, they're, they're tough people down there. You want to be very careful, okay? And, uh, and so this guy answers the door. For 45 minutes, I had to listen to everything that God had done badly in his life. His wife left him because God wanted her to leave or something to that effect. So after I listened to all of this, I said, are you sure it was God's fault all these things happened to you? Whose else's fault would it be, he, he replied to me. So I just said, well, do you think you had any responsibility? Do you think your wife left you because you didn't show the love and the respect to her that you should have? And I thought to myself, I've had to start 45 minutes in the cold. You could have shown some love and respect towards me, okay? And, and if that's how you treated your wife, well, I don't blame her in some respects walking out and leaving you. But it was fascinating. I lost my job because, because of God. Are you sure it wasn't because you were a really bad worker and didn't turn up on time and do the things that you... No, it's God's fault. And so often we discover that that's the attitude that people have. And as we look at this section of Scripture, you can't get away from the fact that, uh, that we have a, a fascinating account of the fact everybody's blaming everybody else. The children are blaming the parents. The parents are blaming the children. And God says it's not the sins of the parents that cause these things to happen. It's your sin. It's your responsibility. Remember when Charles Price uh, made the point, and uh, I can't remember the exact example that he used, but it's like this. You know, you're sat in the car. Uh, the blue flashing lights, red and blue, have come up behind you. And you roll the window down. And the officer says, do you have any idea how fast you were going? And you say, it wasn't me, it was the sin inside me. No, it wasn't, it was you. You control the car, you know how fast you're going. You chose to do that. And there are people in this tent tonight who need to be very careful about what's going on in their hearts and lives. Because you can't keep blaming God for the things that are happening. There comes a point that you've got to take some responsibility. And that's the message that we're looking at this evening. So on the equator, back into uh, Nigeria mode, on the equator you probably realize that uh, the word equator means equal, I think, roughly. It means you're halfway here, you're halfway there. And one of the things that you notice on the equator is the fact that the sun rises at the same time every day and sets at the same time every day, with just a few moments different depending on on, uh, on the, the, the turn of the earth. But that's the reality of it. And so you knew what time to get up. You knew what time to go to bed because that's what happened. And for some reason, I was allowed to stay up late one evening. I can't remember the details, but there was something that had happened and we were doing that. And I remember distinctly uh, my father saying uh, at about 10 o'clock at night, I'll go down to the night watchman's shed and wake Ali up. Now, at this point, you should be smiling to yourself because you shouldn't have to go to the night watchman's shed to wake him up, okay? So again, down in the corner by the entranceway that led out onto the high street, if you like, from the compound that we lived in 
Ali sat in his little shed. He turned up at approximately 6.30 every night, and by 7 o'clock he was sound asleep. That was the, the way that it operated. And so my father, every night before he went to bed, his job was to go down to Ali's shed, and as he got to the shed, he would listen, and there was this... Okay, and then there was a terrible panic when he knocked on the tin door, and Ali would come too, and he would realize that Malam, that was the name given to, uh, uh, to, the, to the man, my father, and he'd say, Malam, Malam, yes, yes, everything is okay. There has been no problems yet, okay? Well, of course there hasn't been any problems. Ali's asleep. He hadn't got a clue what's going on. There is no way that uh, anything uh, would, uh, would have taken place. So the compound in the city of Maiduguri, where my parents lived, was an interesting place, and there are many things that have been coming to mind uh, of recent But the truth is, Ali was the worst night watchman you could ever have. Because when the thieves came, and they did come, Ali was the last person to know about it the following morning. You know, the police had arrived and sorted everything out before Ali was woken up, and they'd ask for his report, and he'd give a report saying he hadn't heard or seen anything. And and that was it. And the scriptures that we have here, how do you spot a watchman? who's failed in his task. Shall I tell you? Can you remember from, from what, what he read? His hands are dirty. Why are they dirty? Because they're covered in blood. Okay. Now, do you begin to see the seriousness of what we're talking about here? If the watchmen are asleep, the man with the sword comes and blood is spilt. And this is the account that we have here. So we, we see there's many things that are wrapped up in this uh, wonderful section of Scripture. Uh, people are saying it's not fair. How can it possibly be fair that a righteous man lives all his life doing the right thing and he fails once? And the Scripture says he will die. He will be lost for all eternity. And yet the other guy who, who lives his life doing whatever he wants, causing all the havoc he cares to cause, upsetting people, disrespecting his parents, and yet he turns, turns, turns. Did you notice how many times that was spoken of in that scripture? He turns to God. And God says, and you shall live. Now, that just doesn't seem fair, does it? How is it possible that that can be fair? And and I mean, you and I, if we were meeting people and we meet some guy who's a rogue, you know know he's caused trouble. And you meet the other person, this lovely sweet girl who's just absolutely, you know, she does everything for everybody. And who am I going to say is the one that is pleasing to God? And yet the scripture here tells us very clearly that it's, have we turned to him? Have we called to him? So Ezekiel was a prophet, a strange prophet, I agree, as I've said uh, a few times already. You know, he spent 390 days lying on his left side. Uh, 50 days lying on his right side, but God instructed him to do this and there was a reason for it. But Ezekiel, the prophet, was a watchman. 
And even the section of scripture that we have entitled here in the NKJV, it says the watchman and his message. And so we discover very clearly that Ezekiel knew what his task was. It was to look out for the people. It was to look out for the nation. It was to see the man with the sword coming and then to call to the people to repent and to turn to God because he didn't want blood on his hands. And so he did what he was encouraged, what he was led to, what he was directed by God to do. And as we read this section of Scripture, the faithful watchman, the good watchman, the watchman who cared and did his job properly, well, he had clean hands. Because when he saw the enemy coming, he sounded the trumpet, he screamed and he shouted and he ran around and he made sure that everybody knew the danger that was coming that they saw and understood what was happening. And so his hands, figuratively speaking, were clean. But as we've mentioned already, the unfaithful watchman had hands that were stained with blood because he never alerted the people to the fact that the sword was coming and so blood was shed. Isaiah in his prophecy uh, spoke about uh, watchmen, didn't he? And uh, he described three bad watchmen's or Bad watchman in three different ways. Uh, So anybody, uh, back to the hands up that had dogs. Is there anybody who's got a dog that doesn't bark? Are you sure? (laughs) Okay, you've got a good dog that doesn't bark too often. All right, now now our dog is um, about the size of a slightly obese rat. So we're talking of a very small dog. But when, the wrong per- when Adrian used to come to our home, uh, all she would do would spend the entire duration of his visit. She's got to know him now. But the entire duration of his visit, barking at him. Okay? But Isaiah says that a bad watchman is like a dog that doesn't bark. Okay? Could you imagine that? You've got this beautiful guard dog. You've trained it up. It's been trained to alert you when there's problems. And it doesn't bark. You know, it just watches people. Well, that's no good, is it? Bad watchman is like a man who's blind. Kevin could play the drums and he couldn't see anything. But he wouldn't be able to be a watchman because he couldn't see the distance. So Isaiah likened an unfaithful watchman to a blind man. How could a blind man ever be a good watchman? How could he see the sword coming? And Isaiah also likened the unfaithful watchman to that dog that could not bark. He likened them to people who, like Ali, in our compound in Nigeria, slept soundly when the danger was coming. But Ezekiel was a good watchman. He was a faithful watchman. And he delivered God's message to the people. The Jewish people both in Babylon because the exile had taken place at this time as well as those back in Judah and Jerusalem. But what was the message that he delivered to the people? Well, strangely enough, the message that he delivered to the people is the same message that I want to bring to you this evening. You see, there are some things that just don't change. And this is one of them. Ezekiel, I think he says it, is it something like eight times in this section of Scripture? Turn, 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 turn to God. 
And that's the message that I have to bring to you this evening. I have to. I know some of you quite intimately, and I, I, I know the pressures that some of you are facing. And I know the fears that some of you are facing. And I know the answers and the solution to your problem. It's not knowing me, but it's knowing Jesus. It's not becoming more religious. You can be as religious as you want. I've got a, a, a tribe from Poland down here, and I used to travel to Poland quite a lot, loved it. And uh, one of the things that I remember seeing was the shrines to Mary everywhere. Every little village, the corner of the street, and there was some sort of miracle that had taken place. And people would build a shrine, they'd put flags up and all sorts of things. I remember on one occasion uh, walking into uh, Vashava and uh, to the old city and seeing one of the great big Catholic churches, Polish Catholic churches. Apparently there's a distinction between the two. It's a, it's a bit like Reformed and really Reformed, I think, that the Polish Catholic are, uh, are hardcore and that the Roman Catholics are a bit softer. I, if I've got that wrong, you can come and slap me afterwards, but I think that was the general gist. To see people kneeling down like this with a label put around their neck, telling everybody the sins that they had committed, the penance that they had to do, and they were told that if they did that for so many hours, so many days, so many years that God had let them off. That's not what the Bible says. What, what hope is there for anybody? You know, you get a sore knee and you'll remember it, the experience. You'll see the embarrassing accounts of people walking past. The message that Ezekiel had to bring is the same message that we talk of today. Ezekiel warned and he reminded the people and he kept saying, repent and turn from your sin. Repent and turn from your sin. And this is the message that goes right the way through his prophecy. And it's the same message that we have to speak today. Nothing's changed. God is the same yesterday, today and forever. God doesn't change. And here's the thing. God's as fair today as he was then, even though the people said he wasn't. And today people say he's not. And I, I can't get over this, but the number of people who talk to me and they say, the God you talk about is the worst God there could ever be because he's not fair to me. And what they mean by that is he doesn't do it the way they want it. He doesn't allow them to live the lives that they want. He keeps reminding them that they've got to do something about this. And that means changing and turning, changing our heart, changing our mind, but changing the way that we live. And young people say to me, that's fine when I'm ready. Do you realize we've had, uh, Nelly, so we won't ask you for the details. Were you driving at the time? or uh, Okay, so it wasn't your fault directly. Do you re Sorry? It wasn't your fault. Okay, she was just clarifying that. It wasn't your fault. Do you realize that within our fellowship, I think we've had three young people that have not just had accidents, they've rolled their cars two or three times, if not more. I've got to say to you, will there be a fourth? And, and they've survived. They've walked away unscathed. And Ezekiel says, turn to God. Why you have the opportunity to do so? Turn to God. Call to Him. Turn to Him. Eight times in these, these verses we've read together. 
the word repent or the word turn is used. And God repeats a message. You know you have to listen seriously. Because God doesn't waste words. Don't, don't think that for one moment. He wouldn't waste the word turn and repent if it didn't make the difference. If it wasn't important. If it wasn't vitally important. Because he's not into wasting words. We, we do. You heard the rubbish politicians talk at the moment. Unbelievable, isn't it? And you know what? Nobody believes them. And they still talk it. And they waste words. And we can't do that. And I'm not wasting words this evening. All I'm saying is this is God's word. Listen to it. You need to listen. Because some of you, I don't know what the opportunities are. God is patient. But please don't presume upon his patience. You might think to yourself, I haven't got to worry about it, you know. I'm 17. I'm immortal. No, you're not. You're not at all. And so we need to listen. And when God repeats things, and he repeats them a lot, we need to listen particularly. So this evening, I think most of us by now know what the word repent means. It means you need to change your mind. First and foremost, you need to change your mind about yourself. You need to recognize that you're a sinner. I'm not a sinner. Yes, you are. That's how we're born. It's not easy for some of us. The really proud ones here don't like to talk about being sinful. The really good ones don't like talking about being... None of us like talking about being sinners. So first and foremost, you need to change your mind about yourself. You need to recognize you're a sinner. Not easy for some of us. No one likes to think of ourselves as a sinner, but we are from the very moment of our conception. We are conceived with that sin built into us. The sweet little baby that we hold. We've got a, a baby dedication service next week, so please come along uh, Sunday morning. And I'm looking forward to that because I get to hold the baby. I hope she's going to be quiet. But you know what? When you hold that little child and you want to cradle it and you look down and if it's in a good mood it's smiling and you make all sorts of cooing noises and you think to yourself you know this, this child's probably more intelligent than this but you just you just look at it and then you realize that we've got to be good watchmen because that little one is depending upon us Danica in the hospital, she's depending upon Ari and Joanne and Edie and, and Simon. And all of us, incidentally, as well. Because when she's here running around, we need to show the love of the Savior to her. There was a guy here, I think he might even be here this evening. I, I won't look in a certain direction. I'll look down for the moment. And he was talking about this. He said, I was only six. I think he said he was only six. And, and he came to know Jesus, and the following morning, this is a six-year-old, he felt the burden of sin lifted. Is it possible? Now, the skeptics here will say no. But it is. It absolutely is. 
And when I listen to my kids singing, Behold Our God, it really, really brings tears to my eyes. Emmeline, who's four, Behold Our God. It's wonderful. Because a child is able to understand so much when we're prepared to watch out for them and to encourage them. We need to do all we can to encourage our children to seek God and to seek a relationship with the Savior. And if you're a Christian parent here this evening, you're a watchman. And if you're here in this tent, I'm a watchman for you too. And there are some folks who break my heart because I see the exposure that you have had to the gospel week in, week out. I see the love that has been spent and shared upon you from parents who pray for you day in, day out, all day during the day. And all they want to do is to see you turn to the Savior. Call to Him for your salvation because they're concerned for you. Then we need to change our mind about God. And for some of us, that means beginning to believe in an existence. Yes, you've heard so much about him and you've got this sneaking suspicion that what these other people say is absolutely right because you've discovered something about Christians, real Christians, not the religious ones who call themselves Christians, but the believers who have come to faith in Jesus Christ. You've discovered something about them and it's this, they're real. They're absolutely real. What they say they mean, what they say they will do, they do. And when they say that they'll pray for you, they'll pray for you. And when they say that they are concerned for you, they mean it. And you know there's just that inkling that there's something going on. There is something supernatural here. We're going to talk about that in a couple of weeks' time on Sunday morning. The fact is, if the church wasn't supernatural, who'd bother listening to us? Because anybody can come to a religious club on a Sunday morning or a Sunday evening. But I don't want to turn up at a religious club week in, week out and playing bingo on a Wednesday night. We want more than that. We want the supernatural. And the relationship that we have with God is supernatural. And we see miracles in this church as lives that have no concept of God whatsoever are changed. As people come to faith in the Savior, as suddenly they, they recognize their sin, they turn to Him. And they're baptized. Somebody said to me, um, let's see, am I going to embarrass anyone? No, I can carry on, I think. Somebody said to me when I came to this church, that lad, <laughs> right toe rag he was. <laughs> and now I've seen a change over the last few months. Because it's real. Because it's life. Because it's life in Jesus. Because Jesus has moved into the most rebellious heart. And he changes us. And it brings us joy.
But you have to change your mind about God. You need to acknowledge him. And you need to trust him. And you need to believe in his plan of salvation, which is through his son, Jesus Christ. But I've also got to explain this evening that this change of mind about ourselves, about our sin, about God, has to be translated into a changed life. You can't claim to be long to the Savior and carry on living as you do. And this is one of the hardest things I think that Joe and I face, uh, perhaps, that we've ever come across, is people who tell us how religious they are. And then come Monday morning, they can carry on and live their life in the way they want to. It's lip service. Does anybody like somebody who's hypocritical to you? I tell you who notices it first. Children do. They spot a fake instantly. They know when you're faking the relationship with them. A child doesn't have to learn it. He knows it. She knows it. And so, repentance means a change of life. You see, if a thief truly repents... He not only stops stealing things, you know, you can say hello to him and you can check your wallet at the end of the conversation and it's still there. But not only does that happen, but he returns the wallet he pinched the month before and says, I think this belongs to you because there's a change. There's a change of action. Everything changes. If you're a drunk, you repent, you come to faith in Christ, it means that you stop drinking. But it will also mean that you're going to put right the lives that you damaged. Your children, when you were cruel to them, you'll put it right. Your wife, when you treated her badly, you're going to put it right. Because you've turned, you've changed. not always easy and we're patient with people but repentance means change a change of mind a change of heart and a change of action now let's go back to uh, ezekiel 33 10 to 20 it's not a new section of scripture in this particular um uh, section of of scripture you discover that Ezekiel has said these words almost word for word on two other occasions before chapter 33 yet again God is speaking yet again we know the seriousness of what is being said and so when you look back at chapter 18 for example and then back in chapter 3 where you discover that uh, Ezekiel is speaking and he explains the human responsibility before God it's almost as though he's searching through all the prophecies that he's brought and he's bringing all these things together all these different uh, lessons that need to be learned and he's putting them together in this great message this great sermon found here in chapter 33 and he's collected all this information over the time that he has been able to bring it together and now he brings it in one go and he makes this great statement this great message you see the Jewish nation had been taken into captivity in Babylon and the younger generation were blaming the older generation it's your fault we're here And Ezekiel says, actually, you're responsible as well. 
You can't blame your parents for the position that you're in. Okay, let's be honest. They might have been the worst parents you could have imagined. They weren't truthful to you. They brought you up in some weird environment where you had to look good on a Sunday but the rest of the week and do what you want. How is a child meant to assimilate and understand all of these things? They can't. Some of the testimonies we had last week, one of them says he went to church and they spoke a foreign language. Now, you know, forgive me for a moment, but surely it's good to go to a church where they speak the language you do to be able to understand what it means to know God, to have a relationship with him. How can the watchman watch out for you when you don't understand what he's saying? You've got to have some community and communication. Perhaps your parents were cruel to you. On the one hand, they went to church on a Sunday. On the one hand, they talked about their faith and their belief in God. And on the other hand, they were terribly cruel to you. And as you think back to your childhood, all you can do is to think of the terrible things that took place and happened. But God says, even if that's the case, it's still your responsibility to turn to me. To call to me. You see, the Jewish nation had been taken into captivity. The youngers were, generate, were, were blaming the older generation. But Ezekiel makes it clear that God didn't punish the children for the sins of their father. Ezekiel explains that each person is responsible for his or her own sin and cannot blame someone else. Even though that's the default position, isn't it? It wasn't me. It was him. He did it. If only somebody had warned me, and I'm warning you, and I'm not the only one who's warned you, as was explained to us so very well and clearly, I think a week ago last Wednesday or the week before, by Charles Price, we try to blame everybody else for our sin including God and sometimes even Satan. And then Charles very eloquently, and I've read this a dozen times, and I keep messing it up because it's that section of Scripture from Romans 7 which you can struggle to get your tongue round, okay? But I'll try and, try and say it to you, read it to you. Romans seven fifteen to 21. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. But now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, Nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me. But how to perform what is good I do not find. For the good that I will to do. But the evil I will not to do. That I practice. And if I do 
what I will not to do. It is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. Notice the repetition of the word I, me. Friends, it's time that you stop blaming everybody else. It's time that you start to take responsibility for yourself. If you're young, stop blaming your parents for the fact that God is distant and deal with it. Don't blame your parents because when you stand one day before God in judgment, you won't be able to say it was their fault because you were here tonight. And the watchman explained to you that you need to turn to him. I say this with genuine graciousness. But even if you were raised in those terrible circumstances we spoke of, that you were treated badly, you still have the responsibility to acknowledge your own sin. Ezekiel made it clear that God didn't punish the children for the sins of their fathers. Each person, each man, each woman, says Ezekiel, is accountable to his or her own sins and cannot blame someone else. And interestingly, when you read at, uh, Ezekiel 33 verse 10, we find similarities with Romans 7 that we've just read together. Listen to this. Therefore you, O son of man, say to the house of Israel, thus you say, if our transgressions... And if our sins lie upon us and we pine away in them, how then can we live? I don't think the version that uh, um, Randy used used the word pine, but uh, it certainly does in the NKJV uh, in verse uh, 10, I think. And let's just read it uh, uh, there. Uh, so verse 10. It's amazing when you look for numbers quickly how you can't see them. Have you found that? Therefore you, O son of man, say to the house of Israel, thus you say of our transgressions and our sins lie upon us, and we pine away in them. How can we then live? <laughs> Have you ever pined over something? Perhaps the girl didn't call you back. And you'd hoped with all your heart that she would. And you find yourself pining. You know you've let the person down. And your heart is in agony. Because you've allowed that to happen. See what's going on here? Some of the people were now feeling the pain of their sin. They were pining. It was hurting. It was like a heavy weight on their shoulders. Again, thinking to that, that six-year-old lad, six years, wakes up in the morning and he can fly because the weight of his sin has been lifted. But what was the problem here? The problem was that this feeling of remorse fell far short of real repentance. And I come across this all the time. Pastor, I've said sorry. 
I've said I'm not going to do it again. As if saying sorry will deal with it. You see, the mistake that so many people make and have always made is to distinguish correctly between regret and remorse and what true repentance is. Regret is simply an activity of the mind. Whenever we remember what we have done, we ask ourselves, why did I do that? But asking why I did something that I know I should not have done is not true repentance. Now, remorse is a little different. Yes, heading in the right direction. Remorse includes both heart and mind. Regret is an activity of the mind. Remorse includes both the mind and the heart. And with remorse, we feel disgust and we feel pain. But do we change our ways? Perhaps for a short time, we might try and do it better. We've all been there, haven't we? I'll never do it again, Lord. I've learnt my lesson this time and within hours we're back at it again. So what does true repentance include? It includes the mind, the heart and the will. We change our mind about our sin and agree with what God says about our sin. In fact, we will abhor ourselves because of what we have done and the way that we have lived. When Peter remembered his sin of denying Christ, he repented and sought pardon. When Judas remembered the sin of denying Christ, what did he do? He experienced remorse, yes. He threw the money back in the temple. He wanted the priests to take it from him, and they wouldn't. And he went out and hanged himself. Paul in 2 Corinthians 7.10 explains it so very clearly. And on this note we close. For godly sorrow produces repentance to salvation. Not to be regretted. But the sorrow of the world. What does it produce? What does the verse say? The sorrow of the world produces death. You're sorry. But you're lost. And because you're lost, you are dead in your transgression and in your sin. Friends, this evening I say to you, the message is the same. It's not changed. It's the same today in the 21st century. Repent toward God and place your faith in Jesus Christ. Who is not just able, but is willing to save to the uttermost. And again, Charles Price reminded us, he said this, it's not the size of your faith that matters. Your faith can be as small as a mustard seed. Your faith could have been damaged by things that other people have said to you. Your faith could have been weakened by the years of hopeless, pathetic religion. And you've been trying so hard to be good. Sin may have eaten away at your faith, but what little faith you have 
if you place it in the object of Jesus Christ, he will save you. He will come into your life. And he will be all that you ever, ever imagined that he could be. Because not only does he change your mind and change your heart, but he changes your will and you will rejoice. Romans 38 verse 8, For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Do you know Jesus? If you don't, I plead with you tonight, call to him. He'll save you. Not once in all of history when someone has called have they been turned away.